Welcome to this week's episode of St. Agnes Quick Talks. Once again, if you'd like to support this podcast, I want to encourage all of you to visit churchofstagnes.org and click on the donate button. Today's speaker is no stranger to any of us at St. Agnes, having become a fixture of our London lecture series. Dr. David Devil is the editor of Logos, a journal of Catholic thought and culture, and assistant professor of Catholic studies at the University of St. Thomas. He is extraordinarily prolific, having written articles on the English Catholic literary revival, G.K. Chesterton, and of course the subject of today's talk on St. John Henry Newman. Hi, my name is Dave Devil. I'm a visiting professor at the University of St. Thomas in the Department of Catholic Studies, and I'm the editor of Logos, a journal of Catholic thought and culture, which you can find by going to stthomas.edu backslash logos. I'm going to be talking today about John Henry Newman, one of the newest saints. He was canonized last October 13th, and he's been a special object of my research and also my devotion. To start off, many people have asked me about the newest saint in the Catholic Church, John Henry Newman. And the question is usually something like, what do you most hope for? What are you thinking and feeling? And I have to say that my hope is twofold. First, that Catholics stop confusing him with St. John Neumann, the German priest who emigrated from Germany to Philadelphia in the 19th century. While that Neumann, or Neumann, N-E-U-M-A-N-N, was indeed great, I think there's something even more amazing in John Henry Newman, N-E-W-M-A-N. And that goes to the second hope, that more and more people study his life and writings. For I think they'll find that John Henry Newman, St. John Henry, as he is now known, is a figure in the church who is of the same stature as Athanasius, Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, and the greatest of the church's minds and hearts. The French theologian Jean Guitton recounted in 1957 that an increasingly ill Pope Pius XII whispered in his ear, when Jean Guiton was feeling down about things. Console yourself, monsieur. Newman will one day be a doctor of the church. Now, I think Pope Pius XII was exactly right. When people ask what I'm thinking and feeling, it's great joy that Newman is being raised to the altars of the church. Great excitement that that next step, calling him St. John Henry Newman, doctor of the church, is now one little bit closer to reality. So now I'd like to sketch briefly his life and spiritual vision and close by telling you why he really should be a doctor of the church. First, his life. Newman was born on February 21st, 1801 in London. He was the eldest of six siblings, three brothers and three sisters. His childhood was an ordinary Anglican Christian childhood, and he testified in his autobiography, The Apologia Pro Vita Sua, or Defense of His Own Life, is what we would translate to in English, that he took delight in the Bible and knew his Anglican catechism perfectly. After a brief period of adolescent flirting with the atheism of uh, David Hume and Voltaire, what I suppose we should call the old atheists as opposed to our new atheists, Newman underwent a conversion over a period of months in 1816 and 1817 while studying with the Reverend Walter Mayers, a Calvinistic-leaning clergyman and schoolmaster. His conversion was occasioned by reading such fine 18th century Anglican authors as Thomas Scott, Bishop William Beveridge, and William Law, who are all, I might add, good, good reading even for Catholics. What was Newman's first conversion like? Many people have described it as an evangelical Protestant conversion, but it wasn't exactly that. It was not centered on his feelings of condemnation and the joy of a faith alone, 
that assuaged those feelings, much as he was taught to believe in those realities. Instead, he described his conversion to dogmatic religion, not merely a religion of feelings, but of definite truths, and a personal religion in which he rested, he said, in the thought of two and two only absolute and luminously self-evident beings, myself and my creator. He took from that 18th century author Thomas Scott two mottos that he carried with him all his life. Holiness before peace was one, and the other, growth the only sign of life. He proceeded to Oxford University, graduating near the bottom of his class because he had exhausted himself with overstudy. But his genius had been recognized, and he was soon named a fellow of Oriel College, Oxford, where he found an intellectual community that helped him develop his faith, which had had an evangelical feel to it. He was ordained deacon and then priest in the Church of England, where he always ministered to congregations alongside of his academic duties. In 1833, he helped begin the Oxford Movement, which tried to re-Catholicize the Church of England. His sermons, tracts, and essays were read widely in England and also outside of it. By 1839, however, he'd begun to entertain serious doubts about whether the Anglican Church was really a part of the true Catholic Church. By 1843, he had resigned his ministry and was living in a quasi-monastic community in the village of Littlemore, a couple of miles outside of Oxford, where he had been serving the Anglican Church in a chapel that he had, had himself built. On October 9, 1845, after writing his famous essay on the development of doctrine, he was received into the Catholic Church by now blessed Dominic Barberi, an Italian passionist priest, who had dreamed of the conversion of England to the Catholic fold. Newman proceeded with a number of his disciples to study for the priesthood in Rome and was asked by Pope Pius IX to become the founder of the Oratory of St. Philip Neri in England. That's a community of diocesan priests who are joined by promises rather than vows. Newman set up shop in Birmingham, an industrial city with a large Irish population, and there he and his community ran a church, various charities, and also an upper school for boys. Newman's Catholic life was somewhat rocky, and lectures meant to defend Catholics in the wake of anti-Catholic sentiment. Newman revealed that one ex-Catholic crusader had been defrocked not for his delicate Protestant conscience, but for molesting girls in the parish. He sued Newman for libel and won on a technicality. Newman paid a fine rather than serve prison time. But at the same time, Newman had been asked to help found a Catholic university in Ireland. That enterprise, which took up about five years of Newman's life, largely ended in failure because the bishops would not give him enough authority to run the institution. Newman's time editing a Catholic magazine called The Rambler edit ended when one of Newman's own articles caused him to be mistrusted by many in Rome. This was the famous On Consulting the Faithful in Matters of Doctrine, in which he indelicately pointed out that in many of the church's past crises, including the Arian crisis in the fourth century, ordinary priests and lay people were often better about sticking to the truth than bishops were. Newman gained in prestige after being attacked by Charles Kingsley, an Anglican priest and author, in print and responding with his book, The Apologia. But he continued to be thwarted in plans to establish an oratory at Oxford and also in plans for an English translation of the Bible for Catholics. Nevertheless, he served faithfully in the rest of his years, giving important defenses of the church in works like Letter to the Duke of Norfolk, in which he explained the true meaning of conscience and papal infallibility. He also carried on a massive correspondence with Catholic converts, potential converts, 
and many Catholics, Protestants, and people of all faiths interested in what this man had to say. He died at the age of 89 on August 11th, 1890. So why do I think he should be a doctor of the church? Well, to be a doctor of the church, you not only have to be holy, but you have to contribute in a significant way to the church's understanding of the deposit of faith. Doctors of the church do not have to be intellectuals. Therese of Lisieux was no intellectual, though she was certainly very bright. But doctors of the church often are intellectuals. It would be impossible in a talk of this sort to cover all the different ways in which Newman has made a contribution to the Catholic intellectual tradition. This is a man who wrote sermons, essays, philosophy, theology, memoirs, novels, and poetry. A man whose 32 volumes of letters and diaries are an education in and of themselves. As Walt Whitman said of himself, Newman contains worlds within him. But let me give you five ways in which Blessed Newman teaches us all, whoever we are, to continue to convert, to turn toward the Lord who made us. First, as St. John Paul II pointed out in his encyclical Fides et Ratio on Faith and Reason, Newman offers in his writings on faith, belief, and knowledge a well-developed understanding of the relationship between faith and reason. In a world in which many religious and secular people think the two should be kept in airtight bubbles, Newman emphasized that faith and authority are the air in which reason operates best. Christian faith was not merely rational, but allowed one to have knowledge that went beyond what one could arrive at simply based on evidence. Newman always emphasized that we believe in order to more truly understand. And his two great works on this subject are his university sermons, or Oxford University sermons, written as an Anglican, and his Grammar of Ascent, written as a Catholic. These are tough reading, but they're worth it if you're interested. Second, as Pope Benedict said at the Beatification Mass in 2010, Newman's vision for education remains a challenge to us today. Quote, firmly opposed to any reductive or utilitarian approach, he sought to achieve an educational environment in which intellectual training, moral discipline, and religious commitment would come together. The, lecture, the lectures and essays collected in Newman's Idea of a University remain essential reading for all who are involved in Catholic or Christian education. Third, Newman was the prime expositor of the real understanding of conscience. Many have suggested why when, and I won't say if, Newman is named a doctor of the church, he will be called the doctor of conscience. It's quite possible that that's true, although I think his teachings on providence are also equally important. Fourth, Newman is the founding father of all modern thought about the development of doctrine. Newman understood that certain aspects of the church's thinking and practice changed throughout time in order that the church's deposit of faith might stay the same. As the church faces new situations and new questions, it often comes to decisions that look very different but are really continuous with the church's teaching. Newman's great gift was to think through the process of how the church decides whether a proposed change is a development or a deformation of the deposit of faith. In the more than 50 years since the Second Vatican Council, this need to think carefully about change and continuity has been ever more necessary. Many proposed changes in church teaching and practices are brought out as developments, but whether this is true or not is a tricky subject. Newman's understanding can help us, however, to make those, dis those distinctions. Fifth, most importantly, Newman teaches us how to be Catholics in a church that is divine, but also most thoroughly human. Interestingly enough, his Anglican sermons play a large role in setting up the principles for Christian leadership 
and they're a great resource alongside his own life and letters. A church in which ordinary teachings and especially practical decisions by bishops and even popes have no guarantee of infallibility about them. Newman reflected in, on his disappointment about being stopped from establishing that Oxford oratory to minister to Catholic students and be a light in a university that was quickly secularizing. He wrote about this in a letter, and he noted his own view of God's providence and the role of the faithful Christian who wants to do something for God. Here's, his, here's what he wrote. I am of opinion that the bishops see only one side of things, and I have a mission, as far as my own internal feelings go, against evils which I see. On the other hand, I've always preached that things which are really useful still are done according to God's will at one time and not at another, and that if you attempt at a wrong time what in itself is right, you perhaps become a heretic or a schismatic. What I aim at may be real and good, but it may be God's will it should be done a hundred years later. When I am gone, it will be seen, perhaps, that person stopped me from doing a work which I might have done. God overrules all things. Of course, it's discouraging to be out of joint with the time and to be snubbed and stopped as soon as I act. Thus ends the quote. Newman had a tough-minded view of the difficulties of life in the church, but an absolute thankfulness for a gift of the church's authority, even when it didn't agree with their decisions. He wrote the following prayer. Let me never for an instant forget that thou hast established on earth a kingdom of thy own, that the church is thy work, thy establishment, thy instrument, that we are under thy rule, thy laws, and thy eye, that when the church speaks, thou dost speak. Let not familiarity with this wonderful truth lead me to be insensible to it. Let not the weakness of thy human representatives lead me to forget that it is thou who dost speak and act through them. Failures disappointments, and the feeling of being thrown away for long times during his career did not stop him from accepting everything from God as gift and kindness. If doctors of the church are known by their nicknames, St. Augustine is a doctor of grace, St. Thomas Aquinas is the angelic doctor, what should we call him? As I said before, many people have suggested the doctor of conscience, but I think it would have to be doctor of providence. One of my students pointed out last week that St. Thomas Aquinas has two titles, he is the common doctor and the angelic doctor. So I'd be willing to settle for naming Newman as both the doctor of conscience and the doctor of providence. In his book, The Essay on a Grammar of Ascent, when he finally applies his thought about how we really do come to believe in things and come to be certain to the defense of Catholic faith, he describes the view of providence as necessary to seeing that God exists. He calls it one momentous doctrine or principle which enters into my reasoning in which another ignores, namely the providence and intention of God. Providence is not some abstract concept that merely allows us to look across the centuries and see God's plan dimly. It is the momentous doctrine which grounds us at all times, when we're weak and when we're strong. Perhaps you've seen a prayer card with this famous meditation about the role of that providential guidance, that sense that it is a kindly light always. Here's what it reads. God has created me to do him some definite service. He has committed some work to me which he has not committed to another. I have my mission. I may never know it in this life, but I shall be told it in the next. I am a link in a chain, a bond of connection between persons. He has not created me for naught. I shall do good. I shall do his work. I shall be an angel of peace, a preacher of truth in my own place, while not intending it if I do but keep his commandments. Therefore, I will trust him. Whatever I am, I can never be thrown away. 
If I am in sickness, my sickness may serve him. In perplexity, my perplexity may serve him. If I am in sorrow, my sorrow may serve him. He does nothing in vain. He knows what he is about. He may take away my friends. He may throw me among strangers. He may make me feel desolate, make my spirit sink, hide my future from me. Still, he knows what he is about. St. John Henry Newman continues to speak to us today, urging us to hold to the fullness of faith and live in the embrace of the church, despite misgivings about the failures and weaknesses of her ministers, to seek perfection in our daily lives, where Christ greets us in our duties, to be fully alive in Christ, since Christ dwells richly in our hearts. And his spirit pervades us, he said, like incense pervades a temple. And finally, he urges us to see the providence of God, knitting together our life in the midst of difficulties, to see that we are led, and it is a sure and kindly light that leads us. God, he tells us, knows what he is about. Nothing in my life or yours are in vain. <clears throat> they are all part of God's plan. Find him, Newman tells us, and we will find ourselves. This has been an introduction to John Henry Newman, one of the newest saints of the church for St. Agnes Parish. I'm Dave Devil, professor of Catholic studies and editor of Logos, a journal of Catholic thought and culture. Thank you very much.